We're continuing today our, uh, on our series on 1 Timothy. Today's sermon I titled, Timothy, a True Child in the Faith. And I, I was thinking about this because we had a lot of children in our, ch- in our church this week, and what a pleasant time it was. Um, I think just looking at some of your faces, I seen you here early in the morning all the way until we were done, and after, even after the kids were gone, you're working hard. I'm just, it just warmed my heart to see your service to the Lord and, and to, to these children, really, because they, some of them were saying, I, I am so sad that Friday came up because it's the last day. They did not want it to leave, and um, that's our desire is that they won't, won't, uh, will not want to, to leave the Lord's house. So anyways, it is a great joy though I say here, for any parent to see their child to grow into a mature, well-developed adult. To know that their little, little, little one grew into a gentle and wise woman, um, or that their boys have grown into diligent, respectable men. Parents pray, labor, and hope on these things. Another joy is to see godly traits being lived out and imitated from one generation to another, a godly grandfather and then a godly mother and and so forth. It is heartwarming to see little boys so kindly and gently treating their mothers because they watched daddy being the example to them. In the same token, it's delightful to see a little girl imitating her mother around the house. It is no, new to, no news to us that children, um, children imitate the behavior of their parents for bad or for good. It's just a fact. They just assimilate. Though upbringing doesn't determine, doesn't determine the way a person is going to turn out to be in life, what a parent say and do in front of their children have great influence on the child's worldview and character. The same is true also in the spiritual realm. There is no greater joy for a spiritual parent, so to speak, to produce a true child in the faith and to lead him into maturity. Paul desired that every Christian should reproduce themselves and produce his spiritual children um, that manifested his virtues of Christ-likeness. He sought to lead others to Christ, to nurture them into maturity, so that they would be able to repeat the same process with others. Second Timothy 2.2 states, The things which you have heard in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things that I have given to you to other to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So that... Uh, making disciples and passing on what has been entrusted to you. Really, it's the core of Christianity. We, we have been called to make disciples. That was the great commission given by Jesus. Matthew 28, 19, 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them we know only want people to come to Christ, we want to see them growing, we want to see them maturing, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm always with you until the end of the age. What a promise. Paul took that mission, and he he just moved it along. 
by reproducing himself to the degree to which he was used by God in producing genuine spiritual children. It's just astonishing how many people really came to, to Christ through the preaching of Paul. Some of them that we know, they're famous, Barnabas, Silas, or Apollos, all these names, they, they weren't uh, Paul's spiritual children, but there are many others that are. Just to mention a few, Dionysius, Demaris, Gaius, Salpater, and these are old Greek names, so they're kind of hard to pronounce. Estephanus, Clement, Epaphras, and the whole church uh, in Corinth. And many others, including probably the most uh, of those mentioned in Romans 16, if you go there and you'll, you'll read a bunch of names of people that Paul had led to Christ. So in all likelihood, they were fruit of the apostles' evangelistic efforts. Some he reached personally. Others were saved through his public preaching. Still others were reached indirectly through those that Paul himself had reached. Of all of those that were saved before Paul met them, those who were the fruit of his labors, only two of all these people were called a true child in the faith. One of them is Titus, and you see that in Titus chapter 1. And the other one is in the passage that we're going to be studying today, 1 Timothy chapter 1. You can open your Bibles there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Only one, only this true man, this true young man, were called true child in the faith by Paul. And so this unique description that only he reserved for Titus and Timothy um, was reserved for this key man in the apostle's life. Of these two, Timothy was the most, the one that most reflected Paul's character. I'm going to read just a quick passage here before we get to our text. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you. They, Timothy was kind of like an envoy of Paul to go to, to a Corinth. And he describes him as, Who is my beloved and a faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So Timothy was Paul's protege, his spiritual son, the most genuine reflection of the apostle. This letter to Timothy, as well as the second letter that he wrote, is first and foremost a letter from one man in the ministry to another, from a beloved mentor to his most treasured apprentice. So let's read our text. It's a short two verses, um, and I'll try to explain what each word will have an uh, implication for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we know that uh, there's so much packed in here in this just two verses. Pray, Father, that you would open our understanding and that you would challenge us to think that we have been blessed to have mentors, to have spiritual mentors like spiritual parents to us. May we have, Lord, this encouragement to also go and make disciples, to be a blessing to someone else 
to bring the truths that we have been taught by you and that as we look to the example of Timothy, that will cause us to think and to move forward the task of making disciples. And then we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our sermon will be a little bit different today. It will be short, and I will spend some time explaining baptism, because we're going to have one right after. Um, and so you will bear with me here in these two verses. Last week, we were introduced to the circumstance of Paul's writing this epistle in the letter, or epistle is another word for letter in the New Testament, to Timothy. And basically, how do we do church God's way? That was the main point of last week. I believe that Paul and Timothy example provides for us a great foundation. How do we do church correctly? And I think discipleship is uh, the, the beginning of it all. The opening words of 1 Timothy demands our attention. He says, Paul, an apostle. We tend to skim through some of these greetings in the New Testament as if they were just throwaway verses. You know, they're not. They're just a greeting. However, these greetings are so much more than the, just a, Dear Joe, this is how, how you're doing. That's not, it's not just a kind of formality. Paul, the author of this letter, was giving us his credentials as an apostle, which means that he ha- we better listen to what he said. We're reminded that 1 Timothy is authoritative. All the authors of the New Testament, they're either an apostle, and an apostle is someone that was an eyewitness of Jesus' life or and resurrection, or they were connected, close, they had close connection to an apostle. So that means that those man were not simple man that knew about God. They were chosen by God to write his words. So unlike the other apostles, Paul, though, he did not accompany Jesus during his earthly ministry, nor did he see the resurrected Lord before the ascension. But Paul did have a personal encounter and an amazing account of God's sovereign grace recorded in Acts chapter 9. We're not going to read that, I'll let you take your time at home and and see the story of conversion of Paul. He was a former persecutor of the church. Actually, he killed even many Christians uh, before becoming a believer. And he was appointed after his conversion to the ministry by Jesus himself as the last of the apostles, as Jesus appeared to him in his resurrected body. Paul would become the greatest missionary in the history of the church and the author of a significant portion of the New Testament. So the first thing that grabs our attention here is that we start reading 1 Timothy is that it is written by an apostle. Paul emphatically made his point about being an apostle when he said in verse 1 that his apostleship was by the will of God, as we just read here, the will of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Christ Jesus our hope. Paul wasn't elected by man. He was divinely appointed to be an authoritative representative of the ruling Lord. We should not fail to mention that Paul ascribed this command of apostleship to both the Father and the Son. He didn't self-proclaim or didn't proclaim himself to be an apostle. The Lord has called him for that task. It's very different from what we see the apostles today, right? I, I am an apostle. Well, who, did God speak to you? Um, 
It is clear then that Paul assumed that the deity of Jesus Christ, because he puts him in the same level, the Son of God, as God the Father. Now, I want to devote to, to devote the bulk of our time here discussing the expression in the beginning of verse 2 there. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. From previous considerations, we know that Timothy was Paul's disciple, he was his friend, he was his co-worker, and a dear son spiritually. By the time that 1 Timothy was written, he had been with Paul for about 15 years already. So that relationship has been uh, existing for a long time. And he was the apostle's constant companion. I want to draw attention to three, so a few words here in the original text in the Greek. Uh, the Greek word genusius, uh, translated as true, uh, as a true child of faith, specifically to talk about one's legitimate child, to the one who was born uh, within the, the uh, wedlock, which is the opposite of a different word that is bastard, that is also used in the New Testament, or an illegitimate, illegitimate child. <laughs> Timothy was a legitimate child. Timothy was one that was true, child of Paul. While we have another example of Demas, for instance, is another disciple of Paul, he was said that he loved this present world and he deserted the faith. So that was an illegitimate child, and here we have a legitimate child that remained firm to the end. Um, Timothy... Timothy's faith, on the other hand, proved to be genuine. The use of the word uh, child, uh, technon, is a, the, Greek ver, the Greek word there, instead of huios, it speaks of Paul's giving birth to Timothy spiritually. As you can just say, you know, uh, using one word to refer just to a disciple or someone that you have an influence on. But he used specifically the word as my child, someone that has been born of me. The translation that we use here, the NASV, says that he was born in the faith, and it refers to the objective, the objective body of the Christian faith. What does it mean, faith? It's, he's referring to all of the scriptures and what you believe about God. So the phrase true child in the faith gives insight into Timothy's character, and Paul sets Timothy up as an example for what a true child of faith is like. So the point of our message today is that we want to look at three characteristics that we see in someone that is a true child of faith. So we're going to look at Timothy's example so that we can examine ourselves and think, am I a true child of God? And I have, have I become a child of God? So very simple. You can follow there with the notes. I have some questions at the end if you want to um, meditate a little bit more on that text later at home. So the first characteristic that we see in Timothy is saving faith. Saving faith. It is obviously impossible to be a true child in the faith without experiencing divine salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul's Paul testifies throughout the epistle of the genuineness of Timothy's conversion. Um, here in verses 1 and 2, he suggests the use of the plural nouns that Timothy has the same God and the same Christ as he does. When he says, our, um, our Savior and our hope, doesn't mean it's 
basically saying, you know, Timothy, the same God that I worship, you worship also. The same hope of salvation that I have, you have. If you turn to chapter 6, verse 11, we'll find more clues here. First uh, Timothy 6, 11, he calls him a man of God, but flee from these things, you men of God. And he exhorts him on verse 12 to fight the good fight and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Eternal life to which you were called. And you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Timothy not only had eternal life by, given by God, but also he public prof, publicly professed his faith in Christ in the presence of many witnesses. Paul was probably referring to the public profession of faith through baptism that Timothy might have done. In either case, an unmistakable affirmation of Timothy's salvation comes in 2 Timothy, uh, if you turn to the next book, 2 Timothy 1.5. What does it say in there? For I am mindful of what? Of the sincere faith within you. Timothy, your faith is not a fake one. It is not one of just faces, but it's a genuine faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. His mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois were no doubt at Jew, uh, devout Jews before they became believers in the Lord Jesus. And we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's just flip one more here. Let me do some flipping. Minute. They're all kind of in the same area. <laughs> 315 um, 3.15 says, And that from your childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So we, we know here that Timothy was taught scriptures. He was taught the teachings of the Bible since he was a little child. That doesn't mean that he was a believer when he was a child. It means that he, were, he was taught those words of salvation since he was young. And I think that desire for the parents to, to have their children to love the Lord was even expressed in his name when his mother named him or his father named him Timothy. Timothy means the one who honors God. The one who honors God. We can see that desire for the salvation of uh, their child, even as an early age. The circumstances of Timothy's conversion are not recorded in his scripture. We don't know exactly how it happened, um, it is, but it's likely connected to Paul's visit to the city of Lystra, that's Timothy's hometown, when he was there with Barnabas in his first missionary journey. And I showed a little bit of that last week, the maps there, you can look in the back of your Bible if you're really curious to know where is Lystra. It's a modern Turkey today. Um, so they, after seeing Paul heal a lame man, the people in the city of Lystra decided that 
he, Paul, and Barnabas were gods, and they attempted uh, to sacrifice to them and to worship them. And Paul, however, short, shortly afterwards, um, they refused that worship, and then these people turned against them now. Some of Paul's Jewish opponents from nearby cities came and turned the crowds against him. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, and he was basically given as a dead person. So Timothy, Eunice, and Lois must have been aware of these events because Paul survived it, and he comes back to the city and comes and starts preaching again after being bit, bitten up almost to death. Um, so both Timothy and his family heard the messages that Paul had preached. So on his first visit, Timothy must have been very young, but the Christian faith took hold of him, and Paul became his hero. It was at Paul's first visit to Lystra on the second missionary journey that life began for Timothy. So let's turn a little bit further now to Acts chapter 16. To see how that closeness was developed between this two uh, men. Acts 16, 1 to 3. It says there that Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, that's the city, and the disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was Greek. So young as he was, he had become a valuable member of the Christian church in Lystra. There was such a charm and enthusiasm in the young man that everyone spoke well of him. To Paul, it seemed the ideal person to be his assistant. Maybe even he had dreams that this young man, that um, this one man was the one that he was going to train to take over his ministry after he passed, when the time came. Unfortunately, now, not all of those associated in the church of Ephesus where this letter is being written to, they were disciples like Timothy was. That's why he sent him to be an example. Um, in chapter 3, 16 of 1 Timothy, we read that, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, and proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken, taken up to glory. So you will remember that I told you last week that there were a lot of people that were in a church, but they were false teachers. They did not believe that Jesus had been born in the flesh. And they were spreading that false doctrine. And that's why they sent, he, Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to correct those things and to teach the true gospel. We, we know that no one who rejects Christ's deity can be saved. Our Lord himself said in John 8, 24, that unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. So salvation, according to Paul, comes through confessing the Lord Jesus 
as Lord and believing that God has raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 9, it's a well-known passage that says that. Evidently, there were those in Ephesus that were not committed to these essential truths. So some, like even among the leadership, were openly teaching false doctrine. And the very thing that Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he gave this warning before he left the city, that many would arise even within the leadership that would be teaching false doctrine. In chapter 4 of 1 Timothy there, verse 1 and 3, he says that in the later times, some would fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared of their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. All these teachers that were uh, teaching false, a false gospel, they're all about rules. You can't do this, you can't eat that, you can't get married, you can't have relations. It, it, a bunch of rules that God never intended. Those things that God made to be accepted with thanksgiving. That was the, the nature of the false teachers. Since the later times refers to a present time, since Christ have come, we are living in this time. This is happening right now. Some in Ephesus fell short of the true saving faith, believing instead in demonic lies. They listened to hypocrites with a seared and deadened conscience, teaching a false asceticism. It's a means of thinking, I am holier because I do this and I do that and you don't. Um, so according to chapter 6 and verse 20, some at Ephesus even have followed prey of worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments which is falsely called knowledge. These people claim to have a special knowledge that nobody else had and that knowledge didn't lead to a, a, a holy life, to a a just and righteous living, but only to hypocrisy. But in contrast with all of that going on in Ephesus, Timothy's genuine faith is stood up in sharp contrast with the false, the false faith of the many in Ephesus. This week at VBS, we had, we had a very good and fruitful discussion regarding, regarding saving faith. To those who are part of God's kingdom. We talked about the bad kingdom, the good kingdom. Um, and those who were transferred from the kingdom of darkness, they were all born into. And I think the kids really scratched their heads when we, we said, you know, we're all born into the bad kingdom. We're not born into God's kingdom. We're not all children of faith. That, that is a sad reality. Uh, I grieve to say those things, but I cannot deny what scripture says. Not all of us are children of faith. At, at birth, this is not a reality. Rather, we're born as slaves to sin. And we, know, see, we all see that, even little babies in their behavior, right? Um, that's our nature. This is where we're born into. But Christ has come, and that was the good news. Christ has come so that we would, he would give us new life. Here's a good text for us to, to have this well defined. Open your Bible to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. The Apostle John is describing here uh, who, who is Jesus? What was, 
Why did he came for? What, is, what was his mission? He says there on verse um, 11, he came to his own, he came to the Jewish people, that was his people, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So the children of God are those who received Jesus. Even those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yes, we are all born humans. We're all the sons of Adam. And in a sense, we're children of God for being made in his image. But we're not born his children. We become his children the moment that we have this saving faith. John, just flip a few pages. We have a, even, see, a religious leader like Nicodemus, a man that knew the Bible through and through, and yet he was not a child of God. And here Jesus, look at his face, and I mean, I can only imagine what that confrontation would look like. And, uh, and he's very confused. Nicodemus is very confused with this whole thing. Like, what, be born again? What does that mean? And in verse 3, let's pick up from there. He says, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And children, you were the ones that were here, you will remember this, the kingdom of God. We want to be part of the good kingdom. How do we become part of that kingdom? When we're born again, not in the flesh. And he said, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born again, be born, can he? Jesus said to him, answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is a spirit. So there are two kind of births. One is our physical birth, and there is the spiritual birth. I do not recall the day of my spiritual birth. Sometimes I, it really upsets me because I don't remember the date. I wanted to celebrate, like I celebrate my own birth date. Um, but I can still give thanks to the Lord because I know that that happened one day. So more than the privilege of being a legitimate spiritual child to the Apostle Paul, Timothy became a child of God by faith. So you too, if you haven't yet, can become born again as a child of God by believing in Christ as your Savior and your, and your Lord. I appreciate how the Apostle John expresses with such excitement the realization of this fact. The God, the King of Kings, the creator of the universe, who is loving, who is holy, who is righteous, he would call me his child? First John chapter 3 says that. I think we should read this passage with excitement. John is saying this. Look, observe this. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. And such we are. 
For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And it is not like you're walking around and people are going to see you in the name tag, they're child of God. We can't see those things. It's a spiritual reality. And he says, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. But we know one day when Christ comes back, when he appears, he says, we will be like him. And as um, our brother was sharing today here, uh, we're not going to be perfect in this life. Besides that, when he appears, we will be transformed and that perfection will happen. We will be sanctified. There will be no sin anymore. We'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. And I mentioned even to the parents that came uh, on Friday how, you know, the world is just after children today. Um, I I mean, I I don't like to reference a whole lot of of movies, but there is a documentary, um, Sound of Freedom. I don't know if many of you saw that. It's just awful things happening in the world to, to exploit children. And yet the Lord is saying, you know, I have come to make them my children. Um, and everyone who has this hope fixed in him will purify himself. Really, this will lead us to the next point. Not only Timothy had this genuine faith, a saving faith, he had continuing obedience. That is another mark of a true child of God. The New Testament teaches repeatedly the hallmark of a true believer is a life pattern of obedience. Our Lord said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John 8, 31, he told those who had professed faith in him, If you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And then Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, then, We are his workmanship. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, we understand that good works and and good behavior and obedience is not what saves us, is not the ground for salvation, because we cannot do good enough to inherit salvation, but it is an evidence of it. As Martin Luther puts it, God's Good works do not make a good man, but a good man does good works. You see the the difference? It is not what makes you, it's who you are that causes you to do these things. The pattern of Timothy's life was obedience. When Paul returned to Lystra on his second missionary journey, as I mentioned, he found that Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. In two cities, he was already well known. Paul testified of his loyal devotion. So look at verse chapter, five, chapter 4 of First um, Timothy. In verse 6. He had a loyal devotion. He said, in pointing out these things, I'm reading chapter 4, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and on sound doctrine, which you have been following. You have been doing this already. You have, I just want you to pursue even more. 
So others at Ephesus did not have that continual obedience. In verse 119, we read that those have rejected the faith and a good conscience. Not only they rejected the faith, but also a behavior that was um, consistent with their calling. They of faith had suffered shipwreck in regard, uh, had suffered shipwreck. They had started on the right course, but had lost, had been lost before they reached the safe harbor. Timothy's unwavering obedience was truly an example of those who believe. He had been a persevering believer in a church riddled with defectors. And just one more verse um, before we go to the next one. It's First John two nineteen. Um, we would ask, what, how about these people? Were, didn't they, weren't they saved? They were there in the church. They were teaching. They were doing things. And how come they're, they're, they're defectors? Well, 1 John 2, 19 actually answers that to us. It says that these people that would leave the church, with, not that they're going to any other church, they're just abandoning the faith altogether, and we scratch our heads and think, what, where are they? 1 John 2.19 says, They went out of from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not all from us. And so that, that's a, a really good test to see, did that person persevere? Um, yes, we might have our ups and downs and our declines and our falls. But do we return? Do we persevere? Do we stay firm? That kind of obedience, that consistent obedience. This leads us to our last point here, and that is humble service. Humble service. That's uh, one of the marks. Now, the third quality of a true child in the faith is that he is a servant. Becoming part of God's kingdom means that one stops serving the kingdom of self and he starts serving God. That is why Paul described the conversion of the Thessalonians in these words. He said, you turned away from idols to serve a living and true God. The Christian life is not to be, live, is to be lived as a stewardship of service to the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. The disciples left everything to follow and serve Jesus. So true salvation is marked by this servant's heart. Humble service characterized Timothy's life. At Paul's urging, he willingly remained at, difficult, at the difficult post in Ephesus. We read in verse 3 that, that was, it was a hard place to stay. And yet Timothy had a heart for them, and he decided to go there. Although in his late teens or early 20s at this time, he endured even circumcision, the surgery that the Jewish people do, um, to better serve with Paul. As already noted, he served Paul for many years through difficult circumstances. No wonder then Paul called him my fellow worker. I mean, you, can you imagine an apostle telling you that? You're my fellow worker. Matter of importance. There is no higher praise. Timothy's humble service made him a fitting heir of, to the unselfish, sacrificial apostle himself. Over and over again, there is, is affection in the Paul's tone of voice when he speaks of Timothy. When he is sending him to that sadly divided church in Corinth, he writes, I am sending you Timothy, 
who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Timothy was the man who Paul could trust and he could send anywhere knowing that he would go. Happy indeed is the leader who possesses a follower like that. Let's just read Philippians chapter 2 because I, I, I read this and this is such a rare quality. The letter to the Philippians talks about really those that even might be serving God with wrong motives to point to their own selves and to show, look how wonderful and how many amazing things I have done. Philippians chapter 2, and he's speaking about Timothy in verse 19 here. Philippians 2, 19 says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send you, Timothy, to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek false teachers, false followers of Christ, seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus and not those the interest of others. But you know of his proving worth, Timothy, he has served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Timothy was to be a fighter. That's why Paul put him in Ephesus to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. He was to fight the good fight. Unlike Timothy, many in the Ephesian congregation lacked those convictions. They were compromisers. Such men were not qualified to be elders or deacons. They were not above reproach. Some of the younger widows were in danger of, of even um, renegating, uh, renegating their uh, commitment to Christ, denying their commitment to Christ. Still others in the congregation had compromised with money um, and using money um, in a greedy way. In contrast, Timothy maintained his convictions even the cost of his own life. Um, we don't have it in written in the Bible, but tradition tells us that um, Timothy actually was martyred in Ephesus 30 years after this letter was written um, for opposing the worship of the goddess Diana. So they had this temple, and um, probably Timothy was faithful. It's a false god, and he got killed for that. He held fast the beginning of his assurance to the very end his faithfulness in serving the Lord. Now, I wanted to close here with a triple blessing to all of God's children. And that's in the beginning there, uh, at the end of uh, verse 2 and 1 Timothy, chapter 1. He uses these three words, grace, mercy, and peace. After describing himself and Timothy, Paul refers to the God who binds them together as a family. What are the blessings that you and I, as children of God, get to experience? What unites us in the common, it's the common share in grace, mercy, and peace. Each word tells us something about the human condition. For grace is God's, kind, God's kindness to the guilty and the undeserving. He gives us what we don't deserve. And then mercy is the opposite, is, is his pity by not giving us what we deserve, we do deserve. 
and in peace is his reconciliation to those who previously were previously alienated from him and from one another. So all three issue the same spring, namely God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, Father and the Son are now erected in a single source of divine blessing. How beautiful this triple blessing it is. So the source of grace, mercy, and peace was and is God's infinite resources. He gives us mercy upon mercy when we are distressed. And Timothy had a lot that he had to deal with. He needed the Lord's mercy. God would give Timothy the grace and mercy and peace that he needed um, to really teach what he needed to teach, to fight the good fight. May we do so as well and so declare the, min- the mystery of Christ, the gospel uh, of the gospel to the world. Paul's point here is that believers stand in this objective relationship with God. Romans uh, 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The peace that we have with God is not about feeling good about ourselves. It's not the tranquility and just well-being. It is a, a, a peace that surpasses circumstances. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. The world gives us peace circumstantial. When things are going well, we're great. But when things are going bad, we are anxious, we're distressed, we're depressed. But he says, my peace that I give to you, I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let it be fearful. So that probably was a very strong encouragement to Timothy. And I want to leave you with one, encourage, one, one last encouragement here before we transition to the baptism. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you are a child of God and you have experienced this you have these three character qualities, saving faith, an obedience, consistent obedience, and also a humble service. You, will, you are in, identified as a child of God, a true child in the faith. So First Peter 2, uh, and we're reading here verse 9 and 10, uh, Peter, also an apostle, is describing us. Who are we? He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once before, we were not a people. We were not children of God but now you are the people of God. Yet, before you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a tremendous promise to us. Because we know that we face face afflictions, we face anxieties, we need the Lord's mercy, and he gives it to us. Um, Now, one of the important elements of a a true believer is that he's going to be obedient, right? I just said that. Um, and we get in the Great Commission that Jesus told us to make disciples and to baptize them, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism really was 
a sign of the new covenant. It was just this ceremony or this um, representation of the new covenant, of this new way that we relate to God, that now we're called his children and that his spirit is dwelling in us. The New Testament actually has no concept of a believer or a newborn that was not baptized. When people repented and believed in Christ, they were baptized, often immediately, as a public profession of their faith and to identify with the body of believers. The two were inextricably linked through the early church. Um, Becoming a disciple, you are baptized. You don't divorce those things. They were happening together. You became a disciple, you become baptized. Now, does that mean that people are saved? They, they need to be baptized to be saved? No, it doesn't mean that. Now, an example of that is the thief on the cross where Jesus looked at him and he said, today you will be in paradise with me. And Jesus didn't wait to be resurrected, to be raised from the dead and then come back and baptize him. It, none of that happened. It is immediate. So what saves someone is their faith in Christ. Baptism, then, is a manifestation, and that's the key word, is a manifestation, a physical uh, representation of what has happened internally so that we're demonstrating out to um, people. So Romans chapter 6, verse 3-7, I think explains this. This will be the last passage that we'll read. But two more, this one and the other. Uh, Romans 6. And um, Paul is explaining here what happened internally and how as we watch a baptism today, you will see that those spiritual realities being represented. He says uh, on verse, starting on verse 3 of chapter 6. Or do you not know that all of us who, were being bapti- who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So what does that mean? Baptism, it means to be immersed, to be dipped into. So when Jesus was buried in the grave, he was receiving the, he was receiving the punishment for our sin. And he was buried, and our sin now is buried with him. That's what he's saying here. Our sin is buried with him, was baptized with him. It was dipped with him. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so that we too might walk in newness of life. And what Paul says here basically is, When Christ was buried in the grave, he was buried for our sins, and our sins were buried with him. But then he was raised back to life and manifested this new life that he had and manifest the new life that he had given us. So when we're born again, when we become a child of God, we become new creatures. Um, And so what we're going to be watching today is kind of that representation as someone goes down they're showing that their way, the old way of living is now behind, it's buried. But now they're coming out as a new creature alive. Now, when should someone get baptized? Um, it is an important question. I think we never had a generation that uh, was, did not 
either understand what baptism means or it has a, a, a special power or they are afraid of, of that they'll have to commit more. I mean, if we decide to follow Christ, we're committed to follow him no matter what. And so the mode of baptism, as the word itself means, it means immersion. To be baptized, it means to be immersed. The element of being dunked into a water, a, a body of water, is a representation of being buried. How can someone be buried if they're not covered by the waters? And so sprinkling or uh, dabbing someone in water is not the right manner according to his scriptures. It is an ordinance that Jesus Christ gave. So being a disciple of Christ, I'm going to submit myself and do that out of joy and thankfulness. And normally in a baptism, it's a declaration of, okay, this person has come from death to life. And they're telling their story on how that happened. And we're going to hear one in a little bit here. So it's an outward element to be used um, in this ordinance is water, in which the believer is to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three were at work in our salvation. All right. And then one last uh, passage here is Acts 8. Um, we have someone here that just heard the gospel being preached to them. 836. How long should we wait to be baptized? Well, let's see an example here. If you have the saving faith, that obedient character, and that consistent uh, life of service to Christ, what, what we need? Um, Acts chapter 836, it says that these two men, Philip and an eunuch, was an official um, from a different country, from Ethiopia, and then he looks at Philip because he believed the gospel, he understood it, and he looks at Philip and said, please tell me of who does, well, actually 36, sorry. Um, and they went along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? We have the elements. I am here, I believed. We have some water deep enough so that we could come in and get in and be baptized. What is preventing me? And Philip simply answered, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And then he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then he ordered the chariot, and it was, Philip was with him in this chariot. They stopped the chariot, and both of them went down to the water, and Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. So really, what do we need to be baptized? saving faith, and that public proclamation. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here. We're going to just change real quick, and um, we will sing a couple of songs, and we will hear uh, Jesse's, Jesse Dunkey testimony. So Jesse is um, a young man that is, I'll, I'll introduce you in a little bit, that uh, I'm so thankful to have met him last year and just to see what the Lord has done in his life um, through really difficult times, and you're going to hear some of that um, in a little bit. <laughs> 